to see you. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, right? As we gather in the word of God, line by line and verse by verse. And all of you in your homes, we love you. We can't wait to see you face to face as the Lord opens that opportunity and door, but know that you are very much loved. And, you know, virtual hugs to your home as we're all gathering in the spirit of God together. Please open your Bible to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. And, um, you know, I just, you know, as an under-shepherd here, I just want to say thank you to, you know, all of the staff, um, the secretaries in the office, the church staff, the pastors, uh, elders, all of the help, everybody every week to do what they're doing is amazing before the Lord. Man, I'll tell you what, we are loved here. You know, these, these folks really love us and they, they serve us and they want to serve this church and the body here. I mean, the chairs are cleaned and sanitized. I don't even know all that that means, but it's good stuff. And you're sitting in a fresh chair, man. No, no cooties in that chair. It's been like since we've had these chairs like a couple of years. Just you're, you're in like the newness of that chair. Guys at home, that's like a new chair, man. Uh, and all the handles have been like, you know, Lysoled and whatever they do, chlorined it or whatever. I don't know. But uh, I just praise the Lord that we can all gather safely and not have to come in and be nervous about every little thing and just let go and just be in the spirit of God. And I'm going to move this. So you know what? I can Sorry about that. Yeah, for you at home, we had to move um, some stuff. But So, you know, I laugh, I smile, I'm happy to see your faces, I love you, I'm glad we can be together. Um, but you're going to see a change in my, uh, my overall countenance as we move into this chapter, and there's a stark reason for that. If you've been through the book of Judges before, line by line and verse by verse, you know as we really got to chapter 17, we know chronologically that this is not in order, that we really believe this happened more around chapter 1 if you look at it from a, you know, timeline like that. But we get to chapter 19, and if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go online and listen because um, there were really five different things that the Lord had put on my heart and pressed on my heart, and what, you know, why is this passage here. I don't know if you've read this passage, specifically the Levite's concubine. It's, it's horrific. I mean, it's, you know, it just shows the, the, the depravity and carnality of man. And when you look at the beginning of these chapters, it's a constant reminder. Chapter 18, you'll see it in chapter 19. And there's a reason God put this in there through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There was no king in that land, right? In those days. Why? Why was there no king in Israel? What is this talking about? I mean, they're looking at it as you were a Hebrew in those days. We didn't have a king. Who was the first king? Saul, right? We'll read about in a few hundred years from now, there will be Saul. But, but I want you to think about this spiritually. There was no king. God and everything that Israel as a chosen people had been brought together under a sovereign God, a king, they had chose to throw out. And instead, they, they much preferred man's wisdom and pagan idols. And so it is very accurate when it says over and over again. And when you look at what has happened in chapter 17 and 18, and now as we read in 19, it, it has everything to do with that surrendered foundation that we talked about last Wednesday. It, it's a surrendered foundation. Once you surrender the foundation, everything on top of it will fall and crumble. It's like building a house, as Jesus said, on sand. It's going to be destroyed when the storms come. Or, you know, if you're familiar with building practices and not putting a footer, and you wonder why your house begins to sink into the earth, and you get cracking and all of the things that go on, it's because the foundation has been removed. And that's what we see here. As we go on to chapter 19, we see the aftermath. 
We see the consequences, okay? We're going to see what it's like for Israel when they have chosen to follow man and not God. It's not going to be hard for us to see commonalities and similarities to the days that we're living today. And it's with that that F.B. Myers, a well-known scholar, Christian scholar, out of all the passages in the Bible, if you know him, highly regarded, highly respected scholar, he said, of all the passages and chapters of the Bible, if there was ever a chapter that I so wish I could skip over, and I'm paraphrasing, it's chapter 19 and 20. Because the things that we're going to read here tonight, to think this is a Christian or at that time a nation under God, and to think that these things didn't happen in the pagan city that they were so afraid to go into and that they were going to travel further so that they could be safe because they were going to come into parts of Israel in the area of the land of the you know, tribe of Benjamin. Because that's where they were going to be safe. That's where things were going to be okay. Only to find out that they were treated worse than the pagans. This is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. And don't think for one second they didn't know it. You never forget Sodom and Gomorrah with everything that happened. You never could forget that. And so let's turn our attention. Let's look at the depravity here. This is Israel's terrible past, but this is what happens when anyone allows the foundation that God has placed, Jesus Christ, and you choose to surrender that foundation, okay? And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. Please underline that. There is absolutely a spiritual application of that. That there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. Or Ephraim. We, we know nothing about this Levite. This isn't the Levite Jonathan that we had read about in chapter 18. This is a different Levite, okay? We don't know his name. We don't know anything about him. We know he arrives on the scene, and the Lord has recorded it for us. Now, this Levite... He's staying in these remote mountains. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, how many of you know what a concubine is? You, you've read it in scripture. You've seen different places where the idea of a concubine, I mean, especially as you get to Chronicles and Kings and, you know, you read that. We didn't even have to go that far. I mean, technically, Abraham, Jacob, Caleb, right? Uh, David, Solomon, um, Rehoboam, all had concubines, right? What was a concubine? It, can I say it in a way that we would understand it today? It was a legal mistress. It was a legal mistress. If we're using the same terminology of what we would describe today, you're familiar with the idea of a common law marriage? Have you ever heard that term? We don't practice it today. We don't hear about it as much. But when I was growing up, you'd heard the term common law marriage, being together and living together for so long. It was... Well, this had legal implications in those days. So if you had a concubine, she was a legal mistress. What affected that was there was no inheritance rights. And so what that meant is that it was well known by your wife that you had this concubine and that she, you know, was able to meet certain needs there, but she was all right with it because of the fact that no inheritance was going to be passed down to the heir but only to her son or her daughter, mostly to the son, to the male child that way, to the firstborn under the law, under their culture and practice. So here we see this Levite, and it's going to start well. I mean, not really. I mean, she's going to turn around and she's going to have, she's going to play the harlot. She's going to have relationships with four different men. She's going to do these things that are unspeakable, you know, adulterous practices, and he's going to go after her, and he's going to want to win her back, and he's going to find her at her father's house. And if you're caught by the account here, at first you're, you're feeling bad for this Levite because here's this man that has this concubine, and we don't read of any other wife or any other you know, woman that he had in his life that way, but he, he appears to have had feelings for her. And then we're going to see the true character and heart of this man. Things aren't always as they appear. Amen? Things aren't always as they appear. 
he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose, and that's not uncommon. The concubine would have referred to it as a husband. Um, please understand, this is not God's definition of marriage. This is man's manipulation. But still at that time, it would have been referenced as a husband. That's what it would have done. You know, remember Sarah and Hagar? When you get a chance, go back and study that. It's very interesting that Sarah will refer to Hagar, or Abraham will refer to Hagar, God never refers to Hagar as Abraham's wife. Not one time in that account. Because Sarah was his wife. So God's definition and understanding of marriage does not play into this plan. It was never God's plan. You can read in Genesis, you know, the very first marriage, you know, I think of Adam and Eve and how God had brought Eve to Adam. I think of 1 Timothy 3, passages, many of us men, uh, as the Lord may call us into ministry, or we look at our lives in the New Testament, it tells us, you know, the husband of one wife. It's talking in singularity, 1 Timothy 3 there. It doesn't mean that you have never been married before, that you you're widowed or something like that. It means no polygamy. It speaks very clearly to no polygamy. One man, one woman for life. That's God's design. Now, certainly there are things that happen contrary to that, but I'm speaking of God's design. You can look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, if you want to hold your finger here again drawing our attention to the Lord's teaching and idea here, because after all, Jesus Christ came to give us true understanding of the word. Matthew chapter 19 says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished in those things that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him and healed them, healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to force his wife for just any reason? Because there were two schools at that time, the school of Hillel, and there was another rabbi in the school, and one said, hey, if you burn, if your wife burns your toast, you can issue a certificate of divorce. Literally, that was in the law. Another, some of you ladies are like, I'll show him burn that toast. I saw some of the, I saw some of the, uh, 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 I just, I, you all had it in you, man. It was like, I was like, whoa, step back. Hang on now, ladies. Hang on now. That was never God's design, all right? But there was another school of thought that says, no, that's not God's interpretation. That's not God's understanding of, of marriage, right? So the Pharisees ask Jesus this question. In verse 4, where I want to draw your attention tonight, he answers it. He says, then he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them, who is that? God the Father, he who made them. He's speaking very clearly. At the beginning, notice that. He says, when we go back to the beginning, God's original design, that's what we need to talk about here. He made them male and female and said, for this reason, a male shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That's God's design for marriage. That's what a biblical marriage looks like. One man, one woman, one flesh. That's God's design. Now, look, some of you may be sitting here or sitting at home and saying, that was my heart and intention too, but things didn't work out that way. But that wasn't my choice. That wasn't my design. My heart, my choice was that, and you were abandoned. Maybe you're widowed. Maybe there's something else that's happened in your life that, that you didn't seek that. And now you think back, Lord, Am I out of your will? No. Because 1 Corinthians 7 says that you are to stay, but if someone abandons you, you're to do what? You're to let, let that unbeliever go. You can't force them to stay against their own will. You can't do it. Jesus said there was only really one reason, and he knew that because of the sensitivity of man's heart for divorce. But please understand, it was never his intention. In other words, 
he knew the heart and sensitivity of men and women that, that if someone committed adultery or cheated on another person that way, he knew it would crush the heart. But even in that, God's design is that we would work through that adultery. We would work through that and we would begin to reshape and reform by giving our lives and surrendering our lives back to Christ in right relationship and union, union that way because we are one flesh. And there's something that happens when we make those vows before God that is supernatural. Nowhere else in the Bible do we read how two become one flesh. And please understand, this is pre-curse. This is pre-curse. For those that have been praying for a spouse, keep praying. Don't ever give up. God is in control, and it's a matter of submission. It's either going to be his will or your will. And I know it's difficult. I've, I've met with some of you before in different situations, and it's difficult. He says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So they said to him, well, then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? Then why? Why did he do that? He says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Please notice that. This wasn't a good thing. This was because of the hardness of hearts, right? He permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and he says, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so what do the disciples say? Forget that, man. We ain't getting married, right? That's, that's, that's heavy, right? They're like, no. <laughs> right? That's, I mean, read it. That's what, they, that's what they say. That's what they say. They're like, man, why am I bringing that up? Because we're going to read here, as this concubine plays the harlot, back in chapter 19, verse 2, right, that she goes for four months back to her father's house. And this Levite does a really good thing. He doesn't just say, oh, well, didn't work out. I tried my best. No, what does he do? He pursues her. And not only is he a pursuer, but he's going to bring some, you know, animals, livestock, and things like that. And he's going to go visit her. And what's he going to try to do? He's going to try to, right, repair, fix, settle. It's, it's a good example for us of what we should try to do, right, in Christ. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. That's a good start. And bring her back, having his servant and a couple donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house. And when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet her. Isn't that interesting? He was glad to meet him, I meant. I was going to say, he already knew her. He was glad to meet him. Isn't that interesting, Well, That was the father, and he had, doesn't sound like he was ever introduced to this man or ever had relationships. So the, it was almost like there was this distance within the family. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him and stayed with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. You know what? She was unfaithful, but he went after her. It's a good example. Divorce is permitted, but not commanded. Please notice that with me. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. That makes sense. He's making a long journey. He wants to wake up early in the morning. He wants to leave while it's early so he can travel so that he doesn't have to worry about bandits or anybody along the road like that and that they can get to their destination of where they're heading. Makes sense, right? Then it came to pass on the fourth day, they were clearly, the father was enjoying the company, that they arose early in the morning and he stood to depart, but the young one's father said, to his son-in-law, refresh your heart with a morsel of bread and afterwards go your way. 
So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night and let your heart be merry. Why is he saying that? Because he knows as well that the longer he stays like that, right, and it's more risky for his daughter, it's more risky for the son-in-law to, to travel that way. So they have a couple morsels of bread. They're having a nice time. You have to understand, fellowship was very important that day. You didn't just stop by somebody's house and say, How you doing? You'd come in, and you would, you would eat together, and you would talk together. You'd have a cup of tea, you know, or different things like that, and, and you would refresh yourself as for your long journey. It wasn't like they had a, a Motel 6 down the road, right? So when, when you were a host and somebody was coming in, it was a big deal. It was a very big It still is today. It still is today in the Middle East. It's a big deal. When you're a host, somebody comes in, not only are you protecting them, but you're showing them true hospitality. Hospitality is a big deal. It should be a big deal for all of us. So the father-in-law says, hey, it's getting late. Why don't, why don't you just stay and let your heart be merry? And, so, and when the men stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him. So he lodged again. Then he rose early in the morning. Please underline that in your Bible. Here's the idea. Early in the morning again, he's going to leave. That's the plan on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon. This is where the problem will begin. At that point, he knew he rose early. He should have said, I'm sorry, we need to get on our way. But instead, he was easily persuaded. So they delayed until afternoon, and both they ate. And when the men stood apart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be married tomorrow. Go, you know, go your way early so that you may get home. However, here it is. Now the man, the Levite, he was so in a hurry to get out that he wasn't thinking. He certainly, he's a Levite. He should have been praying. He was ignoring the obvious. It's past noonday, midday. He's going to travel a great distance. He's taking risk, undue risk. First of all, he shouldn't have delayed, but he did delay. It would make sense to wait until the following morning, if that's what you're going to do. However, the man was not willing to spend that night, so he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. It'll be in um, their territory or the, their hands until, all the time, all the, until the time of King David, basically, in which we know that Jebus will then be taken over by David and King David, and it will become Jerusalem, and that will be where eventually the tabernacle is placed, right? With him, were the two, with him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with them. They were near Jabus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. This is a pagan city at this time. He's weighing things out. He says, even the servant saying, you know, master, come on, this makes sense. We, we've been traveling, you know, it's not, it's not smart to travel at night. There's bandits, you know, there's bad things that can happen. Not only, but you have, a, you have a woman with you. And that would have been under, you know, a constant thought at that time. When you were traveling with a companion, a woman like that, it was not advisable to travel, travel at night. So that if somebody came, obviously, in those days, if somebody captured, they would you know, nefarious things. You, you understand what would happen, terrible things. So he says, turn aside to this pagan city. But his master said to him, we will not turn aside here into the city of foreigners. The irony is the foreigners would have treated him better than his own people did. Who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to give, you know, give you, give up. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibba. I never say that right, Gibeah or Gibba, depending on how you want to pronounce it, or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. What that's telling us is that is the land that was given as an inheritance to the tribe of Benjamin, and Gibeah is part of that area. So they're in the land that belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. 
They turned aside there to go into lodge at Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into the house to spend the night. Do you see that? That's a strange and odd thing. Here he is around the Israelites, his own people, the tribe of Benjamin, right? He from the tribe in that area of Judah, right? Coming in, it would have been normal to show, again, especially at that time, hospitality. For somebody in the open square to see that he needed a place to stay and, and to open their homes to allow him to come in and stay there and provide for him until he could, you know, the next day wake up and he would be on his way after he was fed and, and you know, had an opportunity to refresh in himself. But not one, not one soul in Gibeah was willing to open their home. And I just, I find that so striking in this account because that is so unlike the culture of that day. But it just shows you just how far Gibeah and Israel at that point had, you know, more or less wandered away from God. Loving thy neighbor, you know, thinking of others instead of oneself. Now, that's not just something that I think the Lord wanted us to have as a, you know, in the rearview mirror. And the way that we were to live and the way that the, the Hebrews lived. When Jesus himself was asked, what are the two, you know, or what's the most important commandment? You know, love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he said, I, I'll tell you the next one, love your neighbor. Hospitality is in an Old Testament teaching. It's in a relationship with God teaching, right? And I can't tell you what that should look like. For everybody, you know, that's different. You know, I certainly wouldn't tell you open your house and just let you know, complete strangers come into your house and something unfortunate happened, that would not be advisable. I can't tell you. But you know when you're spirit-led and when the Lord shows you that you're to open your home and that you maybe you have a sparrow, you know, things like that. You know what that looks like if you're being spirit-led. You know it's not yours anyway, right? It's all God's. And he'll open the door for those opportunities. We just have to be sensitive to the spirits leading and prodding at any one time. It's fair to ask the question, Lord, what's my role in this? So often we as believers, every time there's something that happens, we think we are the ones that have to necessarily jump to the response or to the aid. That's not always true. There are so many needs. There are so many things that need to be done for the kingdom of God, for, for Christ. But he has great pleasure in using many people, not just a single person. And if you're not prayed up and you jump into something that, you know, well, this is a need, it's there, I'm, 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 certainly I must be the one to do it, and you don't pray and say, Lord, what's my role in that? You could, be a, you could end up taking somebody else's treasure, that, that, that God had called somebody else to step up that way and to, to do the work of the Lord. But if God tells you and commands you to do it, then, then certainly in obedience you want to obey. But I, I always say that because, I don't know about you, but if, if, you, if you think back to all the different things, even today, uh, presently, all the needs that are out there, can you possibly meet them all? I, I think we all would say no. It's, it's not possible. But is it probable that God is asking you to meet some of them? Yes. Yes, it is. And he'll show you which ones you are to Spirit-led, enter into and serve and, and, and be available. But God is the one that will show you, right? But we need to ask that question of the Lord. So, so many times I think we presume upon God, well, Lord, there's a need. I must have to fulfill it. This, this has got to be done right now. In so doing, I often wonder, do we miss being at the right place at the right time? Because we think God needs help. And we're over here, and God really would have us over here. We need to follow. We never want to get ahead of the Lord, and we don't want to get behind him. We want to be step and step with him. Well, clearly there was nobody honoring God's commandments and statutes at Gibeah at that time, and he's sitting out in the square, and all of a sudden we see just then, verse 16, an old man come or came in from his work in the field in the evening or at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. Hey, look at that. He comes in. He's from the mountains of Ephraim. He's not from Gibeah. You know what that means? He was a foreigner to that area of Benjamin because he was originally from that larger area of Ephraim. 
that he would have come out right that, that way. And he was staying in Gibeah, where the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, what are you doing? Or where are you going? And where did you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. And I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah. Now I'm going to the house of the Lord. If you remember, that is in Shiloh at this point in the land of Ephraim. But there's no one who will take me into his house. Now, clearly this man is talking to him. It's a divine appointment, right? Here you've had that situation. You're talking to somebody. You just meet somebody. You're in a, both of you are in a foreign area or someplace that you're not originally from. And you're, I'm from such and such. Oh man, that's where I'm from. And you know, you're thousands of miles or hundreds of miles, or in this case, you know, hundreds of miles of where you're you're originally from. And, And it's like, we just happen to run into each other here. There's no coincidences. Those are divine appointments. And what does this man do? He says, you know what? Come and stay in my house. This man, who was a foreigner to that land, actually honors the, you know, the understanding of hospitality, God-like hospitality here. And he's willing to open his home for this sojourner, this Levite. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for our female servant, and for the young man who's with the servant, there's no lack of anything. He's making it clear here. Um, he says, I don't need anything. We just need a place to lodge. That's what he's basically saying. He's not, I'm, I'm not out. Because remember, at that time with hospitality, the host was responsible to provide. And, you know, if you found somebody that maybe didn't have the wherewithal to do that, maybe there was a, a, a concern of, oh, you know, I don't want to be a burden to you. You know, we have all the things we need. And the old man said, peace be with you. Shalom. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Here's this single man that's just come out from the field, just been working. Long day, he's tired. Probably the last thing he wanted to do is talk to him. He probably wanted to go home, get some fresh water from the well, wash his face, wash his feet as he would have been out in the field, go in and probably prepare a supper and go to sleep and prepare to do it all over again the next day but he's not interested in his flesh at this moment. He sees an opportunity to be the hands and feet of the Lord. And he says, I'm not worried about providing. God's provided. He says, I'll provide. What a beautiful example of a host here. One man, and there's what, two or three of them with the animals and everything like that. There's the concubine, there's obviously the master or the Levite, and then there's the servant, and then you have the animals. He says, he doesn't say, well, you know, just you, I can take care of you, you know, or the concubine. No, he says, all right, come on in. Just beautiful. Everything, I mean, you're reading this, right? It's a good account so far. We're like, yes, this is good. I mean, except for the adultery aspect, we're we're tracking good. This is good. But we're going to see it's going to change rather quickly. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Oh, do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought him into the house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city perverted men. Now, if you remember in Genesis chapter 19, when we read about Sodom and Gomorrah and this idea of perverted men, it's the same language, it's the same Hebrew, it has the same context. And the idea is homosexuals. These men had come out to have relations with this Levite, okay? They were interested in raping this man. That was what was going to happen. Now, this is considered a high offense as a host, if somebody would come to your home and take those that were in your care, you would never allow that. Never allow that. But I want you to remember here, at this point in Israel, what did they say? There is no king. God is not sovereign in that nation. You see that? This is when society calls the shots. 
when a culture begins to say, no, it's, it's okay. I mean, it's, it, we don't want to be offensive. I mean, if two men are in love with each other or two men want to have, you know, they want to be sexually immoral that way. I have young people in here. I want to be sensitive tonight. But you understand what I'm saying. You know, it's okay. Well, it's not okay. It's never going to be okay. The Word of God says it's one man and one woman. That's why I took you to the passages in Scripture, because that's God's design. And again, it doesn't mean that we're to hate those individuals or not be kind to them or show love to them. No, he he didn't say that. As a matter of fact, your kindness with your truth might be the thing that actually opens their eyes and allows them to come out of that cult-like behavior and find a place where they truly are welcomed and loved just the way that God created them, not with the way that they found favor or acceptance from humans, because that happens. A good friend of mine growing up, I was in high school and she came to me one day. And she said, uh, I need to tell you something. And I said, okay. And she said, I've, for a number of years, I've been finding the opposite sex attractive. She was a, a volleyball player and quite good. And, you know, I'd, we'd go watch the games. And she was always friendly with some of the female athletes. And I never thought too much of that. But the day I remember sitting in her house, she began to cry. And... She, was, she began to tell me how they were the only people that really accepted her. That her father, who was a Christian, her mother, who was a Christian, she was afraid to tell them because she was afraid that they would kick her out or, you know, basically have nothing to do with her. And so she, she was afraid. And I remember telling her, hey, we need to go and talk to your parents. Her dad was a doctor and a very nice man, a very kind man, a very generous man. And I remember saying, I'll go with you. And I held her hand, and I remember walking into the room, and I sat down next to her, and I was holding her hand because she, she was afraid. She was, she was very much like a sister to me. And she was right next to me, and she said, Dad, I need to tell you something. And she began to tell her father that she had homosexual tendencies or lesbian-type tendencies towards the opposite sex. And I watched her father. I've never seen her father lose... I've never seen him lose his temper before. But I began to watch as I saw his... You know, you, you can look at the ver- nonverbal language of a person, and you could see he's leaning more forward. I could see his hands tightening a little bit. Um, you know, her mother began to just weep. And I remember him saying, no, you, you, you don't know what you're talking about. This is satanic, you know, the whole thing. And for a number of years, she had a, an estranged relationship with her parents. Her father ended up getting stomach cancer and dying, and they never, ever reconciled that relationship. And as we got older, and I was still very much friends with her, actually, matter of fact, she came to my wedding, you know, I would always take opportunities, especially, you know, after a few years after that, I got saved, and my wife got saved, and, and I would call her, and I would talk to her, and I would let her know that I loved her, and that never changed. And, but I have something really important that I, I needed her to understand, that, that there were eternal consequences. You know, there's, there's choices we make now with eternal consequences. And through love, you know, I would continue to talk to her and talk to her. And I'd love to tell you that this story has a, you know, a wonderful ending that she came around and said, you know, absolutely, you know, I'm going to accept Jesus right now. 
you know, that didn't happen. But I can tell you what, she began to question different relationships she was in. She began to see some of those things operate like a cult, that there was a lot of groupthink. And she always knew and knows to this day, and I pray to God she even hears this now, that if she ever wanted to talk, if she ever needed someone in a heartbeat, I'd be there. There's no distance I wouldn't drive, nowhere I wouldn't go. Because I love her. She's a sister. You see, that's the love that Christ wants us to have. Not my example, because you can do far better, but the point is, he doesn't want us to readily dismiss somebody because they're not walk according to God's commandments and such. You know what he wants us to do? With love, he wants us to win them to Christ. We're never to compromise. She knows and always knew that where I stood, but she always knew that if something got difficult, she could pick up the phone and say, why am I doing this? And I'd say, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you, you know, in a loving, gentle way, right? And there was even times where she said, I think you're right. And I was always praying, Lord, let this be the call. I had a leader to Christ. Lord, let this be the call. This close. Then I don't know. Who knows? Maybe she came to Jesus. You know? I, I hope when I get to heaven, I, I get to see her and, and say, wow, you did it. I knew you would. Jesus is your father. You know, Jesus is the son of God. He loves you. Well, you know, there's this idea of protection and wanting to be a good host, wanting to be a good brother, wanting to love. And, and so this man, here we are in Gibeah, he's got this house there coming in, and these perverted men surround this house. And they beat on the door. Now, if you're reading this in the Hebrew, the, 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 the rabbis have said, and many Hebrew scholars have said, the translation in English does no justice from verses 22 to verse 30. It is far more graphic in the original Hebrew. Far more graphic. This idea of beating on the door, this is rapping so hard on the door that you would be terrified and frightened. This isn't like a, you know, dun da da dun dun who's there, right? This isn't that kind of rap on the door. This is a, a knock on the door to the point of where you are running in the other direction because you think somebody's busting through that door and they're coming for you. So they beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came to your house that we may know him carnally. Look, there's no misinterpreting that. We know exactly what he's saying. This is Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. But don't think for one minute that this man being from Ephraim, an Israelite, or the Levite, don't know Genesis 19, especially the Levite. They've been there or read this before. They know how this ends. The old man saying, bring out the men who came to your house that we may know him carnally. But the man of the master house went out to them and said to them, no, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Okay, amen so far. Seeing that this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Again, well done. You protect those. Look here. Now, verse 24 is where this whole account begins to 180. And you just sit there and go, Lord, why did you preserve this in the Scripture? You know, I, you get with F.B. Meyer and you start saying, Lord, if we could just skip over this... I'd be all right with it. You know, keep the genealogy, but let's toss this one out. But you know why Jesus left this for us? You know why God left this? Because he wants all of us to see when there is no king, what happens? Carnality and depravity. That will always be the end result. When you take God and kick him to the curb in your schools, in your churches, in your home, what will ultimately result 
will be carnality and depravity every single time. And I believe that's why God allowed this inspired text to remain. That you and I could see we could bring people to this text. As a matter of fact, you know that Abraham Lincoln, when he was giving his second inaugural address, referred to this very chapter. What a president would do that today, huh? What about it? Would open a Bible study as they were doing an inauguration speech. How about it, right? Abraham Lincoln referred to this in his second inaugural address, and he referred to it in regards, chapter 20, 19 in that area, in regards to the Civil War. Because eventually what we're going to see unfold in chapter 20 and on is this idea of Israel coming up and wanting to battle with Gibeah because of the sin of Gibeah and two wrongs don't make a right because ultimately was Israel at the time truly walking with God didn't we read right in the first verse of the first chapter there was no king in Israel at that time so this is a very important passage and I thank God that it was left in here because it's it's a great passage for you and I when we look at our lives and examine our lives in the greatest scripture, but also when we begin to think of others that may be prodigals or people that are walking contrary to the word of God right now or backslidden or people that are unbelievers and to say, look, if you continue the path you're on, wide is the path that leads to destruction. It's not just once, but it's countless times throughout scripture. This one passage, however, will continue to be referenced, and we'll look at it in a little bit, in Hosea, hundreds you know, of years later, right before the Assyrian invasion. They will remember what had happened here and look back to the depravity at that time. It will never be forgotten in Israel's history. So look here with me at this point. So he goes in verse 23 and says, look, you know, do not commit this outrage. Look at verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter. What? And the man's concubine. Again, what? Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not such a vile thing. When you don't live with God in your heart, you begin to compromise. You begin to be selfish and not selfless. The right response here would have been for the man of that home as the master of that home to say, take me. If you want to beat up on somebody or you're going to take me, but don't harm my guests. It would have been right of the Levite to stand up and say, no, take me but you will not harm this woman that's been entrusted to me, nor the servant, nor anybody in this house. But again, when you've compromised and removed that sure foundation, the cultural and societal norms begin to reign. Does this sound awful familiar? Does it sound familiar to the days we're living with all the things that are happening in America today? But the men would not heed them. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her. All night until morning, and when the day began to break, they let her go. Now, they raped her is what this is saying. And this is very difficult. This is very upsetting. Um, often you've heard me say that I, I take scripture and I play the video. Shut the video off. Shut the video off in this passage. You don't want to envision this. The Hebrew, again, is far worse. It's more graphic. It's not just, it's more graphic. I'll just leave it at that. Then the woman came, sorry, then the woman came as the day was dawning, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. Now, I, I read this in verse 27. I, I, 
I don't understand. When her master arose in the morning. What does this mean this man was doing? He was able to go to sleep while this poor woman was being raped and abused. This man could go and sleep. You see, now we see the character of this man. This man didn't really love her. Had he loved her, he never would have let this happen. And he opened the doors to the house and went out on his way. And there was his concubine fallen at at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. You know, who's guilty here? Who's guilty? Is it Gibeah? Is it the man, the old man, the master of the house? The host? Is it the Levite? It's all of them. You know, your title of your scripture, this passage for this area, passage of scripture might say Gibeah's crime written in by man. It's not Gibeah's crime. It's Gibeah's, the man, and the Levite's crime. Every one of them had an opportunity to stand up for what was right and not ignore the abuse. And every one of them failed. Every one of them failed to do what was right. And he said to her, get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey and the man got up and went to his place. I mean, heartless. This woman is dead at this point. Heartless. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine and divided her into 12 pieces, limb by limb and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Now this man is upset. Now he's upset. Now he's angry. And so he's going to do something like this now? Why was he not angry when he was sleeping and his concubine was being raped? Where was he then? Why wasn't he angry then? You know, remember the Levite wanted to not stay at the Jebusites. Remember in verse 11 and 12 there? Because they were worried about the pagan city. This is worse than the pagan city. These were believers that did this. These were believers that did this. And so it was that all who saw it said, no such deed has been done or seen from that day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and very important, I underline that in your Bible, and speak up. Speak up. As a believer, when you see things that are contrary to God's holy word. Speak up. I'm not saying you got to get embroiled in politics. As a matter of fact, I encourage you to turn off the news and the media and all the junk. But when you hear about people being violated or abused, we need to stand up and say no, whatever the cost. The Levite was not willing to lose his life to protect another. And what did Jesus tell us? Lay down your life, right, for others. What did Jesus tell us in Ephesians 5.25, the idea of marriage and what that looks like? Husbands, love your wives as Christ so loved the church, the bride. And what was Jesus Christ willing to do for the bride? 
That's right. He was willing to give his life. They never, ever forgot about this. Turn in your Bibles to Hosea, chapter 9, verse 9. Right around 722, uh, Hosea was contemporary in that time. And when you look at God's ultimate judgment for Israel, which will be brought upon the 11 tribes, minus or sans Judah there, without including Judah, because Judah was the southern tribe, we're talking about the northern tribes, that the Assyrian invasion would come against. Brutal, the way the Assyrians would come in and what they would do as they would conquer people. Brutal, brutal. But look at Hosea chapter 9, verse 9. They are deeply corrupted, as in the days of Gibeah. Do you see that? And he will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Turn over to chapter 10 and look at verse 9. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood, the battle in Gibeah, against the children of what? Sin, of iniquity. It was never forgotten. And ultimately, there was judgment that was brought. But I want you to think about how many hundreds of years, right? We're talking 1,300 somewhere, 1,200 in that time. You know, Hosea 7.22. So you're talking almost 400 years that God was long-suffering and patient, that Israel would repent and return to their true and first love. But Hosea, a prophet, writes to them and says... Israel, now you will be judged for your iniquity. We have another judgment coming, friends. Not for the bride of Christ. This time for the world, as Revelation chapter 6 teaches. It's not the wrath of the Antichrist. It's not the wrath of Satan. It's the wrath of the Lamb of God. Why? Well, just like Israel, today humanity has kicked God to the curb. We've ignored God's commandments and statutes. In America, there is no king. Now, not for you and I, of course there is. But from a sovereignty perspective, it's the democracy. It's the republic of heaven. It's not the kingdom with God on the throne. That's what we're dealing with. And we would be wrong to think that trials and tribulation won't come while we're here. And we'd be foolish to not think that suffering would not be present. Look, I know this isn't popular. I know you're like, whoa, this just got heavy. Yeah, the whole chapter's heavy. But this is what happened when a nation goes contrary to the word of God. Why do we think the United States of America is going to be any different? Why do we think Europe is any different? Why do we think the Middle East is any different? Why do we think Asia, obviously, is any different? Why would we think God is going to do anything different? God is a loving father. And if he needs to give spiritual spankings, if I can use that term, he's going to do it because he's not a respecter of persons. And he so desires that people would come and surrender and submit to the one true God that they would be spared the great tribulation to come. You know, God sees everything perfectly. He, he doesn't look at things the way we see these clips. He sees the panoramic, man. He says, consider it, confer, and speak up. The musicians can come forward here. We're going to close with a song. And, but I want to ask everybody here, I want you to think about, again, why this all happened. You know, next week we're going to go through chapter 20 and 21, and we're going to finish the book of Judges, and we're going to be going into the book of Ruth next. I want everybody to, to think about, again, why this happened. Because inch by inch... 
people began to take God, his commandments and statutes, his love, and they began to say, no, we'd rather do it our way. We'd rather have our religion. We'd rather have our ideologies. And ultimately, that land to, led to a landslide of sin that was so deep that Israel, as it, we just read in Hosea, would never, ever turn back from that sin and iniquity. There would be moments, we'll read it in Kings, we'll read it in Chronicles, we'll see certain kings that turn around, we'll see certain, you know, kings that turn around and say, Josiah, you know, that will have those moments, they'll bring the law back in, but it's a generation. And then they'll go back. It says in Hosea, since the time of Gibeah, all the way to 722 in the Assyrian invasion, the only chance we have is a worldwide revival. I'm convinced of it. That's the only thing that's going to hit the pause button now. We've prayed for revival. Do you know that what happens every time before a revival? Have you, have you ever studied that? Have you ever studied the persecution and oppression that comes and then the multiplication that comes after it? I fear that most of the church has no idea what they're really praying for. And I fear that they're not ready for the persecution that's coming. It's already here. Right? This is a time where you and I, it's good to be a son of the living God. It's good to be a daughter of the living God. We have to reach as many people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ before it's too late. Before the sin of Gibeah becomes the sin of the United States of America. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, I, I don't know if we're already there. Lord, I always know it's not too late as long as we have breath in our lungs. As long as we have hearts to pray, God, it's never too late. Today is the day of salvation. Lord, I pray, Jesus, please soften the hearts of people, of your creation. Allow people's eyes to be opened and hearts, Lord, to be tilled up to plant and to make fertile ground for your good news, your gospel. Lord Jesus, I certainly don't look back to Israel and think, oh, I can't believe they did that. Lord, I have done nothing short of a similar sin, Lord, in my life by, ta by looking at you and assuming or presuming upon you. Lord, if we're all honest, we all have. Jesus, forgive us. Lord, forgive us. If we've backslidden, forgive us, Lord. If we're prodigals, Lord, you're a perfect father. You have prodigals. Why should we be surprised when we do? Forgive us, Lord. If we weren't the fathers or mothers, we, we should have been, Lord, forgive us, Lord. But now, God, we set our hand on the plow and our eyes on you, Jesus, not looking back. We can't change what's been, but we certainly can finish strong. Jesus, I pray you make all things new. In every one of our hearts and minds, Lord, I pray that there is a worldwide revival, Lord Jesus. Just one more chance, God, for this creation, Lord, that you so love, that we love, Lord. Walls would be broken down. Captives would be set free. 
I pray for those living in adulterous situations right now and circumstances, both for the victim of that and also the one perpetrating, Lord. I pray, Lord, draw back those homes to be homes where you're welcome. Let men stand up and be men. Let women stand up, Lord, and be women. And Lord, I pray for those caught in the cult or addiction of homosexuality, Lord. And Jesus, I pray, Lord, please let your world know that we love, we love, Lord, those that are struggling with homosexuality or lesbian or, or transgender. God, we, we desire to help, to give them true liberty, to let them know they absolutely belong in your family, God, when they've turned their heart from sin and iniquity and turn to you, Jesus, how you will enlarge their heart and fill them. And you will give them so much love and hope that the identity and sexual identity and preference, Lord, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be so insignificant compared to the beautiful relationship they'll have with you, Jesus Christ. And Lord, those that are caught in the lusts of Gibeah, pornography and addictions. I pray strength and liberty for the captives. Lord, we need you. We can't do it ourselves. Tonight, Lord, will you set everyone free? Everyone that will call upon your name, Jesus Christ, everyone that will place their faith and trust you, everyone that will look to you instead of their own strength and Look to your righteousness. Will you do that work here tonight, Lord? Will you do that work in the homes tonight, Lord? Touch every soul and set them free, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we just want to worship you now. Bless your people here, Lord. Bless your people in their homes, Jesus. Strengthen us and keep us. For, Lord, you told us we are overcomers. Thank you, Jesus Christ. You've provided the way. May today be the day of salvation, Lord. May people be calling your name right now and asking you to come into their hearts. Lord, I pray you put it on their heart to call us and let us know if they do that, Lord, that we can disciple them, to let them know they're part of a large family the family of God. Thank you, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your holy name, God. And all God's people prayed, amen. amen.